Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. When you think about the Lord's table or communion or however you describe it in your mind, the Lord's Supper, what comes to your mind? How do you perceive it? Uh, as we approach the table, what, what are the thoughts that come to you? Uh, I, I remember as a kid, a myriad of thoughts rushing to my mind whenever this happened. And sometimes I knew it was coming. Oftentimes, I don't know if it's just because of the way that I am wired, I didn't have a clue. And my dad was the pastor, right? So we would come to communion and dad would step up or I'd see the trays up at the front and I'd think, oh man, oh, that's today. And I'm, I'm thinking the whole service. I'm, I'm confessing. I'm thinking about all the things that I've done wrong or maybe done wrong or what if there's something I've forgotten. I used to put that bread in my mouth and think I may die. You know what I mean? I got to chew this thing really carefully because if I forgot something, I'm in serious trouble, right? So when you think of the Lord's table, how does that strike you? For some of you, it, it may be different. The, the thoughts of, of what this is may be different. It may in some ways just be this disconnected thing for you that gets tagged onto a service sometimes, right? And that's why as best we can, we try not to do that. We try and be purposeful in our celebration. And I think that you'll understand that better in a moment. But what does this mean for you? The Lord's table is intended to remind us It is intended to refocus us on the selfless sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus selflessly offered himself. He willingly offered himself up for you, for me. That is what in part we are commemorating. This work that Jesus has done, but he's done it in a selfless, serving manner that has to frame the way that we engage the Lord's table and specifically the way that we engage one another. Now, this is a big issue for the church at Corinth, and I'll explain a little bit of why the the church at Corinth, they had lost sight of what the Lord's table was really all about. They'd lost sight of the wonder, the majesty, the glory of this celebration. Now, that doesn't mean that this was uninteresting or dull for them. No, instead, they had actually turned the celebration of the Lord's table into kind of a drunken, self-centered party, right? Uh, It was a distinction between the haves and the have-nots. This was quite a spectacle for the church At Corinth, they had forgotten that this was in reality a celebration of Jesus, not a celebration of them. And if we're not careful, the church, the body, can quickly become that, a celebration of me, a celebration of meeting my needs, a celebration of me getting what I want. 
And if I don't get what I want, if I'm not appropriately served, well, this church isn't for me. Well, that's not the church. We've consumerized the church to a very great extent in the Western world, but that's not the church. But that's what Corinth was doing. Often for us as Protestants, we have encouraged our churches to focus on the confession of individual sins, to evaluate our individual worthiness as we partake of the Lord's table. As a result, the Lord's table for many believers, we tend to approach it with a bit of uh, timidness. Uh, We kind of tune out the rest of the congregation, right? This really isn't about them. It's about me. I got to make sure I'm okay. And if I'm not okay, I got to, in a frenzied way, try and confess everything that's wrong with me so that I'm not in trouble with God. But that's truly not the point of the Lord's table. The Lord's table has been the subject of much doctrinal dispute and division, certainly over the centuries. But one of the, that's one of the greatest ironies. This is a ceremony that is centered around Jesus and symbolizes and is supposed to build our collective unity around Christ and all that he is and all that he's done. But the abuses and divisions actually create disunity. And often that stems in part from our misunderstanding of what this is. Paul's discussion with Corinth is going to frame his guide for doing the Lord's Supper, for celebrating what Jesus has accomplished. He's framing that with the two sections on either side of his instruction. So the Lord's table, again, it signifies Christ's atonement for us. The Lord's table is not Paul calling the believers to come and take a bath. What he's saying is, come be with your family and celebrate what you collectively share in Christ. That's what this is. It is a collective sharing what Jesus has accomplished. So as we walk through this, what I want you to note with me, and this is kind of the overall perspective. So think this through as we walk through this text together. Our covenant relationship with Jesus and our fellow believers must be observable as we partake of the Lord's table. Now, The way that we partake of the Lord's table, you probably can't experience that in a sense tangibly as we partake. So what this means is our observable uh, actions are done before, after, during the week, as we engage and love and serve one another. This is critical that we understand this has to show up What we are claiming to celebrate has to be lived out or it's a mockery. And I'll show that to you in a minute. That's exactly what Paul says. Now, remember who Corinth is. As Paul writes to this church, Paul is writing to encourage them. He's writing to remind them as a whole in this entire letter, 16 chapters. He's reminding them of the Lord's ownership and the implications of that. 
He's reminding them of the truths of the gospel that are supposed to bring them to mature in unity with one another. Folks, have you ever observed siblings, a two and a four-year-old, and they're kind of standing in the aisle at the store bickering? And we all look on at that way, oh, how cute. Have you ever observed a 21-year-old and a 23-year-old standing in the aisle bickering? None of you would look and say, oh, isn't that cute? You're like, oh, that, what? Do, you don't understand where you are. Like, you need to get a clue, right? That's not cute. And yet many times within the context of the church, we dignify that disunity as I'm spiritual. No, maturity brings unity. And sometimes it means I put myself under somebody else. You say, but you don't understand who I am. I shouldn't have to put myself under anybody. I'm smarter than everybody else. I know more than everybody else, right? No, that, that's not the church. And that's exactly what Paul is going to point out in this text. But it's something that he had to deal with with the church of Corinth. And he dealt with it in a myriad of areas. He dealt with it in the, in the area of morality. He dealt with it in the area of the role of women in the church and spiritual gifts and a giant chapter, the biggest in, in our New Testament, on the resurrection. There were major maturity issues spiritually at the church of Corinth. And so Paul writes to address all of these issues and answer questions. And you literally can track through the book of uh, Corinthians and see Paul, 1 Corinthians, see Paul answering those questions. He'll literally say, now pertaining to, he's answering a question. They asked him that. And then the, the other times when he doesn't say pertaining to, he's confronting an issue in the church. This is the theme of the whole book of 1 Corinthians. Paul is addressing issues and questions. So this section, again, Lord's table, our covenant with Jesus, our fellow believers, it must be observable, evident, active as we partake of the Lord's table. Now, first thing Paul does is he addresses the selfish abuses as this body is commemorating Jesus. And Paul reminds them that's the focus. The focus is commemorating Jesus. That this is not about you and what you have. It's not supposed to be. So Paul begins right away in verse 17. He says, I can't commend you, right? Uh, Paul, in a sense, in a moment, he's going to rebuke them and think through where Paul begins. He says in the following, I don't commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better. Folks, think this through for a second. Paul literally says, when you gather as a church body, it's not helping you. You're not growing. It is not for the better. Can you imagine someone writing a letter to Graceway Church and saying, when you get together, it's not for your good? Folks, that is a stinging rebuke. You are doing damage when you gather. That's not the way this is supposed to work. And we understand that. And so did they. The issue, as has already been presented in the book, there's divisions, there's schisms, 
literally faction, it means schism. And the reason is this, their gatherings were defined by self-centeredness and contention. I have my way, I have my thoughts, I have my perceptions, and if we don't do it that way, it's because you're not spiritual enough to get it, right? You dummies on the other side, you don't get it. And that was the spirit in Corinth. That's why Paul addresses spiritual wisdom from chapters 1 to 4. He says, you guys all think you have this spiritual wisdom. No, you don't. Spiritual wisdom is evidenced in the way that you treat each other in the way that you engage. So now he defines their gatherings as self-centered and contentious. Folks, I don't care how long you've been saved and I don't care what you know. If you as a person are defined by being contentious, you aren't nearly as spiritual as you think you are. That is just the reality of our New Testament. And oftentimes, the most contentious people claim to be the most spiritual people. That is a lie. And our New Testament frames that over and over and over and over again. John does, and Luke does, and Paul does. If you're contentious, you're not nearly as spiritual as you think you are. You're not standing for the faith. That's not how that works. You're just being contentious. And you're immature. Grow up is the charge throughout the New Testament. And love others. That's his charge. Verse 19. Paul is rebuking. He's not suggesting that this is the ideal church. Remember in verse 19 he says, For there must be these factions, right, that are, that are among you. Uh, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, Paul's acknowledging there's factions, but he says there is also, unfortunately, this is not the best, this is not ideal, but because of these factions, those who are right, those who are genuine, those who are honoring the Lord, well, that's coming to light too. That, that's being evidenced as well. That's Paul's point. He's not saying... This is ideal. The more contentious we are, the more you all who are right with God can look like a church. No, that's not what he's saying, right? No, that's not the ideal. What he's saying is, despite that, those who are genuine are rising to the surface. There is the reality coming of judgment. Judgment will come because of this. There will be a consequence. And he's going to deal with more that more at the end. But Paul is addressing the selfish way instead that they are conducting themselves instead of the sacrificial way in which Jesus conducted himself. Now look again at verse 20. He gives us there, verse 21, he goes on, he says, each one goes ahead with his own meal and one goes hungry and another is drunk. So in verse 21, Paul is describing more fully what's going on with the Lord's table. Here's what would happen. Those who had, they would come early to the gathering. They would bring a great big meal with them. They'd bring a bunch of food and they'd sit down and they'd start eating. And by the time the rest of the people arrived at the gathering, the food had been eaten. 
So much so that the, the indulgence of those who had already arrived and partaken early had led to overindulgence. Paul says even at times they were drunk. They had eaten so much, they had drunk so much, they were intoxicated. That's the idea. Now, were they actually, or is Paul stating that in a way that's kind of hyperbolic? I don't know. There's debate on that. But here's the reality. Some of you are indulging yourselves at the expense of those who don't have. So in the first century, oftentimes the Lord's table was turned into a meal. They would just eat a meal, and it was called the love feast in the first century. That's what they would do. And that is likely what Paul is referring to here. They would eat, and so when they gathered, they ate. The ones who had, they would eat up and enjoy themselves, right? And all the people who didn't were sat on the side and just kind of had to watch that. And Paul is literally saying, you are selfishly abusing the intent of this whole thing. Verse 22, he goes on and he asks these four rhetorical questions. And these questions are, in some respects, jarring. Number one question is, don't you have a house you can eat your meal in? Listen, if you want to eat like that, do it at home. Don't do it in front of everybody to show off. And folks, think that through for a moment. That's exactly what's going on. That's exactly what's happening. Those who have are showing up with their abundance and kind of putting it in the face, sticking it in the nose of those who didn't. Paul says, that, that's ridiculous. Why would you do that? That in no way reflects the self-sacrifice of Jesus and his work on the cross. Don't engage one another that way. And you say, what does that have to do with us today? Have you ever engaged with somebody at the church who's constantly reminding you of what they have? You ever interacted with somebody like that? Hey, listen, I, I could give to that. I could help with that. I could help out with that. Folks, it doesn't matter what you give. No one should know. But you shouldn't be constantly reminding people, hey, remember what I give. Hey, remember what I gave. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't give. Please do. Please don't stop that. But you don't need to tell everybody. In truth, folks, that's why we have a box in the back. You can kind of slide that in there, right? Nobody has to know. You can give online. No, nobody knows, right? Except the people who count. And some of them don't even know. Week to week, they, they don't know who gave last week. In part, that's the point. But that was the abuse with this church. You have those who had a lot showing up and kind of rubbing those who didn't, rubbing their nose in what they didn't have. And what this again reminds us of, it's a challenge to be cautious about the way that we treat one another. How do you engage others? You engage in a way to be recognized for who you are or what you know or what you have. So the other people say, wow, look at. That's not how the church is supposed to engage. That's Paul's challenge here. Don't interact with one another in a selfish, self-centered, self-serving manner. Beware of the way that you engage one another. But now he moves to the clear instructions. Verses 23 to 26, we already read it. Uh, if you have sat in on our Lord's Table celebrations in the past, you uh, know it fairly well. We read it every single 
time. This is the appropriate manner to commemorate the Lord's table. And Paul begins in verse 23 with the reality that this is from God. I am telling you what God has communicated to me. These are God's instructions for celebrating the Lord's table. And that is why we read them every time. That is why we use the words of Paul. These are words that, according to Paul, God communicates to him so that we understand what we are doing and why we are doing it and how we're to do it. Right? So he says, what I received, I've delivered to you. And then he reminds us of that night. Now, if you recall, the night before Jesus uh, is crucified, the night on which he is betrayed, he and the disciples were likely celebrating the Passover together. Now, the Passover, Seder it's called, is a Jewish feast. It's something that they still celebrate today. If they are devout, they celebrate it every year. They celebrate it at the same time every year. There is a process. There is a uh, myriad of things that they do, and they do it the same way every single time they do it. Now, part of that feast throughout is partaking in unleavened bread and breaking that bread. Um, part of that feast is a cup that is filled with juice or wine, and it is partaken of several times. Well, at the end of that, Jesus takes that cup one final time at the end of the meal, and he raises it, and he says, this is a symbol, not literally, it did not literally become his blood, so it's a symbol of my shed blood, right? As the meal's going on, Jesus literally takes the bread, likely it would have been unleavened bread, and he breaks it in half where everybody could see it, and he says, this broken bread symbolizes my broken body. Now, think through this for a minute. If you're the disciples and you're sitting there at the Passover, right? This, this Seder, this, this celebration that you've done since you were a toddler. You've partaken in this. And you've heard people talk about it. You've heard all the words. They're the same words every year, right? But this year, Jesus says, this is my body. And it's broken for you. And he breaks that bread. Do you think that a couple of the disciples are sitting there and saying, now wait a second, that's not normally how we say that. What, what does he mean? What, what is he talking about? What is, this, what is this describing? When he says at the end, this is my, this cup is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood. Do you think a couple of the disciples were sitting there saying, what? What, what, are we, what is he talking about? Folks, this is why after, for the 40 days after, up until Acts 1, uh, for the 40 days after, Jesus ascends back into heaven, or 40 days before he does, he is training his disciples. And for those days, Jesus is connecting dots for them that I am certain, and certainly from Mark's presentation of the disciples, they missed for three and a half years of Jesus' earthly ministry. They missed, right? 
If you've ever taught kids, you know that look. That look that they didn't get it. They, they have no idea what I just explained to them, and we're going to need to do it again tomorrow. Right? Or if you're teaching them in Sunday school, next Sunday, we're going back to this lesson. They missed it. Can you imagine being with the disciples? And Mark presents them that way, probably with the voice of Peter behind Mark saying, yeah, we missed that again. Yep, we missed it there too. Yep, didn't understand that. Oh, missed that. I think that's why Mark, under the inspiration of God with the voice of Peter, presents the disciples in that way because there was a lot they were missing. And likely on this night, they didn't fully grasp it. Here, Paul makes the connections for us from the stories that we've heard in the gospel of that night when Jesus was betrayed. And the significance of the bread, of the broken bread, of the cup at the end. This is a reminder. This is a reminder for us. It's a celebration of the incarnate body that Jesus unselfishly assumes he takes on human flesh and then unselfishly he yields himself up as a sacrifice, as a lamb, the Bible tells us in Isaiah, being led to the slaughter. This is what Jesus did for you. Listen carefully to me. This is what we commemorate. This selfless sacrifice in your place. You could not pay for your own sin. You can't. It doesn't matter how much good you do. It doesn't matter how much right you've done. You can't pay for your sin. But Jesus could, and Jesus did. This is what Jesus accomplishes for us. And the broken bread is a reminder of his broken body for you. He died for you. He shed his blood for you. Now, in part, as Paul lays out what we're commemorating, he's also making a very distinct contrast. Jesus, in a very selfless manner, gives himself up. You Corinthians, in a very selfish manner, are commemorating what he did. You see how they don't match? That's why Paul gives us the instruction. The instruction, the guide, frames the mindset that we should have as we approach the Lord's table together. It should change the way that we engage. It should change the way that we think about the sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf. In verse 25, as he closes this discussion, he reminds them again, he takes the cup, he reminds them again of the significance. Jesus establishes this new covenant, this new arrangement with him and with God and humanity through his sacrifice, providing forgiveness of sins, opening the way for the activity of the Holy Spirit in the heart of genuine believers which we see in Acts from the beginning of Acts 1 all the way up to where we are. We'll see it all the way through the end of the book, right? The ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. It all becomes possible because of what Jesus accomplishes and the new covenant that he institutes that night before he dies. This is significant. 
And the manner in which we commemorate it is also significant. Jesus commands them twice in this passage, do this in remembrance of me. So the way that we do it should commemorate the way that Jesus did it. The manner in which we celebrate should commemorate what Jesus has accomplished. The theme then should be unity. The relationship of redemption is accomplished only through the sacrifice of Jesus. It's not because of who you are. It's not because of what you give. It's not because of where you grew up. It's not because of what you don't have or what you do have. That is not what makes us right with God. Listen carefully. We are all rescued through the sacrifice of Jesus. That's it. That's it. And because of that, we're all level. That's that's the reminder of the Lord's table. We're all even. We're all the same. No matter what we have or don't have. Our unity around the Lord's table is because of Jesus. And that's it. So the Corinthians, what they're failing to do is to truly celebrate the Lord's table together. And this is part of Paul's accusation in the first part where he presents the problem. He says, what you're doing is not even partaking of the Lord's table. You understand that, what Paul's saying? He says, your abuse is so out of bounds, you're not even participating in the Lord's table. Now, The reason I in part point that out is Paul does the exact same thing in Galatians. We'll see that tonight in our text. But he does the exact same thing with the gospel. He literally says, what you are clinging to, it's not even the gospel. It's another gospel, and there isn't any other gospel. You got this all backwards. Says the same thing here with the Lord's table. You've got this so upside down, you're not even truly partaking in or celebrating the Lord's table. So now he concludes with, and it's important for us to understand this, he includes with warnings. There are warnings, admonitions that he gives to them in light of the instructions that he offers. And the reason he does is this. If we disgrace the Lord's table by the way we treat others, We are accountable. We will be accountable. There is judgment coming. Folks, the manner in which you treat others, you will give an account for one day. And sometimes, for some of us, we think in our minds, man, that person didn't get what I feel like they deserve for what they did to me. Folks, that's truly not mine to to wrestle with, right? But what we know from this text and others, God will address it. God will address it. There will be a day of accounting for this. And that's what he fleshes out for us in verses 27 all the way to the end. So look carefully with me. Just briefly, we're going to fly through this. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats of the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, I want to stop just briefly, and I want you to make this connection. Please do not miss this. For most of you, depending on your background, when that verse is read, it is automatically connected to what? Your individual, personal walk with the Lord. Where are you at? 
How many sins have you committed that you haven't confessed, right? That's the mindset. Now stop for a second. Do you understand that that is not Paul's point? From everything Paul has said from verse 20 or 17 to verse 26, it's all related to what? The abuses toward one another in the body. So literally what he says is, if you partake in an unworthy manner, if you partake in a manner where you are taking advantage of, you are abusing your fellow believer, if you partake then of the Lord's table, well then you're partaking in an unworthy manner. You see what's unworthy? It's actually the way we engage each other. It's actually the way that we treat one another. It's actually the way that we speak to one another. And how many times have people in a church had a contentious engagement and then walked down to partake in the Lord's table? Or they know there's a rift between them, but they partake in the Lord's table. Why? Because in their minds, individually, this issue isn't theirs. They're standing for what's right, or they've been wronged, or... The other guy responded wrong or, or said the wrong thing, whatever, right? But they individually, right, me and the Lord, we're good. So I can partake in the Lord's table. Folks, that's not true. And according to Paul, if we do that, we are partaking in an unworthy manner. You are out of bounds if you do that, right? You see that? Verse 28, he goes on. So let every person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So the examination in part is the examination that Jesus calls people to in the Sermon on the Mount. If you sinned against your brother and you come before the altar to offer your gift and you know you've got a wrong, what do you do? Leave your gift. Leave your gift and go get right with your brother. That's exactly what this examination is supposed to yield. If I know I'm not right, if I know there's an issue, if I know that there's stuff going on, you go get right before you come do this, right? That's what he's describing. This is what we're examining. We're not examining our own perfections. And folks, if we're not careful in our minds, we can think, I'm going to engage with the Lord's table in a worthy manner. What can you do to truly make yourself worthy of what Jesus has accomplished for you? Good answer, nothing. Right? So why do we think that as we approach the Lord's table? I'm not making myself worthy. I, I'm not worthy. Right? What this is is a commemoration of what Jesus did. And what I'm saying with my life is I'm trying to live the way he did. In a self-sacrificing, others-focused manner. Folks, listen to me. Is that truly how we engage? Is that truly how we live? We're thinking about others. And, and what I'm saying is not, do you do something for others at times? I'm not saying that. I'm saying, as you engage with people, the things that come out of your mouth, are they selfless? Sometimes, folks, the things that we say and we just talk, chalk it up to, I, I'm blind. Or, or I, I didn't mean it that way. That, it doesn't matter, 
right? You said it. Make it right. God is calling us as his people to live differently. And every time we commemorate this together, we're reminded I'm supposed to live differently in the way that I engage others, in the way that I communicate, in the way that I interact. So examining is to determine, in a sense, our genuineness. Do we genuinely believe what we claim to believe about Jesus? Are we genuinely being transformed into his image as we engage others? Is that evident in our lives? That's what we're supposed to examine. There is, and verse 29, there will be an accounting. He says, he goes on, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And Paul even goes on to say, listen, that's why some of you are ill or weak, and some of you actually have died. Now, again, had some of them died? I don't know. I don't know if Paul's saying this in a hyperbolic way or he's saying literally some of them have died because of these abuses within the context of the church. Certainly both are possible. Here's the truth. What Paul is saying is this is important. This matters. You don't engage in a way with one another in the church. You don't engage in your own Christian home in a self centered, self-serving manner. You've got to engage for the good of others, right? Verse 31 and 32, he goes on, but if we judged ourselves truly, the word truly is not there in the original, it's just if we judged ourselves, if we would do this examination on ourselves, if we would evaluate ourselves we would literally not be judged. We would save ourselves from the judgment that we will receive because we won't evaluate ourselves. Folks, the call here is just evaluate how you engage and allow God by His grace to change you and enable you to engage in a manner that is others-focused, not self focus. Verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. That word disciplined is literally the same word in Hebrews 12, the discipline of a son, the same word that's in 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16, the development of the believer. It's that final step, that growth in maturity, the ongoing challenge that's happening. He says, listen, when we're judged of the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Folks, listen carefully to me. Part of what Paul is suggesting here is that God is growing you if you are truly his. And that growing process will prevent you from ultimately being condemned like the unbelieving world will be condemned. But that process, we've got to yield to that. We've got to yield to the work of God in our lives when we're confronted with His truth. We have to say, man, I don't measure up to that. Lord, help me. I need grace. Lord, sometimes my mouth runs away with me. Sometimes I am self-serving in areas that I could be others serving. How are we engaging with the body. He goes on and he says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait. 
for one another. Don't charge off and eat your meal on your own. Wait for everybody. If anyone's hungry, let them eat at home. If you're starving, if you're that hungry, you got to bring a three-course meal to this, eat at home, right? And then come together so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Paul concludes with this motivation, the reality that judgment will come for those who reject this truth. There will be judgment. There will be a consequence. And he says about other things at the end of verse 34, I will give directions when I come. There are other things that Paul needs to address. This one was a priority. And Paul says, we got to deal with this first. This has to be confronted first. And so that's where Paul begins because of the urgency of this matter, of this issue. So hopefully you can understand, you can see flying over this whole text, our covenant relationship with Jesus and our fellow believers must be evident. It must be observable as we partake of the Lord's table. Here's the question for us today. How are you selflessly serving others in the body? Now, some of you may immediately say, well, I'm not necessarily selflessly serving anyone here, but I've selflessly served my neighbor, or I selflessly serve my spouse, or, or whatever the case may be. Folks, listen carefully to me. The church, there is a bond in the church that demands that we also serve one another. So if immediately your thought is, well, I'm not serving anyone here, but, nope, <laughs> you, you've already acknowledged the issue. How are we engaging and serving each other? Folks, are you serving just by faithfully being here and engaging the people around you? Are you serving by reaching out to those who are not here? Are you serving by faithfully giving? You say, man, what, why would you talk about that? You know, you're just saying that because the church pays your salary. Well, you can assume that if you'd like, but here's the truth. And the reality is this. When you give, you're not giving to me. You are giving to God. And if you decide, I'm not giving. It's not me. But, uh, by some miracle for seven years, I've been given money from, from our church every week. I, I don't know how. There's weeks I wonder. I don't know how I have this. But here's the truth. God provides that every week. And he doesn't do it because you gave or didn't give. God will provide. But here's the truth. When you decide I'm not giving, that's an issue with you and God. We give out of the abundance that God has given to us. And for some of you, you would say, you know what? I, I, I've been trained that you give 10% of what you make. And, and that's, that's true. But do you understand in the New Testament? That's not true. In the New Testament, the recommendation is that's a really good start. But you're supposed to give as God has blessed you. And folks, if you walk out in that parking lot today and just look around, God's been really good to all of us, hasn't he? When you go to each other's houses, guess what? God's been really good to all of us. Some of you have more than one house. God's been really good to you, hasn't he? Here's the truth. What are we doing with that? 
Are we faithfully giving back to God because of his goodness? Folks, that's our motive for giving. You understand when Paul challenged the church at Corinth about giving, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you know what he, inclu- you know what he concludes with? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You know why you give? Because God gave Jesus to you. You can't give enough to outgive what God's given to you, right? So we faithfully give just because God's been good to us. That's it. That's our motive. That's our heart as we give. It's not, I'm propping up the missionary, I'm propping up the church, I'm helping pay the rent. No, I'm giving to God. That's why I give, right? So what's our motivation for serving, for engaging, for faithfully coming? What's your motivation? It's Jesus. It's others. Is that why you engage? Is that how you engage? Many, many years ago, there's a story told of a man who was in the East, and uh, in the East, the Middle East, the... Thought is, if you sit down and partake of a meal with somebody, there is this bond, there is this connection, there is this unity that kind of surpasses everything else. One day, a a Persian nobleman was sitting out in his garden, and there was a man who runs into the garden and lays flat on the ground in front of him, and he begs him. He says, this rabble behind me, this mob is chasing me, and they want to kill me. The nobleman sitting there was eating a peach in his garden, and so he handed the the rest of the peach to the man, and the man ate the rest of that peach there in that nobleman's garden. And when the incensed mob arrived finally at the garden, the man, it was declared, the nobleman's son had been killed by this man who's sitting in the garden with him. The heartbroken father replied, though, in response, we have eaten together. Go in peace. And would not allow the murderer to be punished. Why? Because they had shared a meal together. Now, in truth, I don't know if that story is true or not. It's hard for me to believe it in one respect. But I will tell you this. It's exactly the spirit of believers breaking bread together. There is a unity that surpasses everything else because we understand this is about Jesus, not about me. This is about others, not about me. Is that how we engage?